The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Every history of the whole Civil War touches at some point on the issue of guerrilla warfare. Partisans, rangers, bushwhackers, whatever they're called, they always get a chapter that either dismisses them as a colorful sideshow or uses their brutality to further highlight the chivalrous organized warfare of the main armies. Today's guest argues that guerrillas were brutal indeed, but not a sideshow at all. His name is Daniel E. Sutherland of the University of Arkansas. His book is A Savage Conflict, The Decisive Role of Guerrillas in the American Civil War. And this is Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you wondering how to jumpstart your life while bringing more excitement and joy into every moment? Join the Goddess Gals, the mother-daughter dynamic duo, Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany, each week on radio's favorite power hour, Star Style. Be the star you are. You'll hear from the experts and authors that inspire and motivate you to be your greatest, unique self. Plus, in Tea for Two, a mother-daughter brew, Cynthia and Heather tackle the topics and tips that make a difference. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio, Studio. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you live once again from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. It's a cold January afternoon, the sky is gray, and a winter storm is approaching here uh, towards Greenville and ECU, which, by the way, is not responsible for this program, even though I'm using their telephone. Uh, I'm not doing their work at this very moment, except in the general sense of professing history, I suppose. But... uh, uh, disclaiming all legal responsibility on their part for anything that is said, just as I'm sure my guest will speak for himself and not any other institution. We're solely to blame for what will transpire. The uh, winter storm that approaches has Greenville in a tizzy. Uh, predictions are that there will be snow. doesn't matter how much. Any snow in North Carolina will cause panic. Um, in fact, my, my best guess is there will be some freezing rain and everyone will go about their business, but but we shall see. Uh, in the meantime, we are uh, back here with our first show of the new year of 2010. It has been a long, 
winter layoff uh, due to various circumstances, and uh, uh, I'm very happy to be back. Looking forward to hearing from listeners with uh, emails and suggestions for future guests. We have some uh, excellent shows coming up this year. Uh, in the month ahead, we'll be talking uh, one week about the medical aspects of the Civil War. Uh, we've got a show lined up on the uh, overlooked issue of sharpshooters, a tactical program where we talk about the individuals who aimed their weapons and uh, what role they played in Civil War battles. And then pulling back, taking a larger scale look, we've got a, a very interesting program on the issue of uh, citizenship. Uh, Chris Samito has written a, a very uh, a well-received new book on the role of combat service and citizenship for Civil War soldiers, particularly African-American soldiers. And we'll be talking with him about that uh, in the weeks to come. Check Civil War, uh, the website that you're listening to right now, and also go to cwtr.org uh, for the most recent uh, news on Civil War Talk Radio. You can usually find it there. You can also find a link there uh, back to this page, uh, or no, I guess the link right there to donate to Civil War Talk Radio if you want to help with the occasional purchase of books uh, and other materials to enrich the show, or uh, snacks for the host. Really, I get to spend the money on anything I want. It's not tax deductible. It's not something you can declare in your taxes. It's just for me. But if you uh, wish to contribute in that way, uh, PayPal to CW, uh, what is it, Civil War, rather, CivilWarTR at AOL.com. That's the PayPal address for contributions. Uh, the $20 contribution limit has been lowered in this time of difficult economics for only $15. You can now get a copy of Did Lincoln Own Slaves and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln or a copy of All for the Regiment, The Army of the Ohio, 1861-62, uh, autographed if you wish. Uh, even if you don't want, just to, to gratify my ego, tell me that you want them autographed and I'll do it anyway. Uh, either book for $15, for a $15 contribution. Well, since we were last live on the show, and I appreciate the emails from people asking when that would resume, uh, weekends have been occupied. Uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, August, January 8th, was the weekend of the American Historical Association annual meeting this year in San Diego, California. And I don't always go to the AHA meeting. Listeners who are in academia in, in history know that the the while in a sense the AHA is the flagship organization of historians in the United States and is the uh, the main meeting it is traditionally uh, filled with the the angst of job seekers it was once the place where job seeking grad students met up with hiring committees from universities but those days have long since disappeared now it is the place where hundreds sometimes of job-seeking uh, graduate students show up for dozens, if that many, uh, of, of job openings uh, to conduct prearranged interviews, to walk around in their uh, uncomfortable uh, blazers and uh, skirts and, and, and wear that they are unaccustomed to as grad students, um, hoping that uh, somehow against the tide they will be the ones to get 
get hired this year. The employment market for historians this year is worse than it's been in, in many. And uh, it just continues the, the ongoing crisis of the American historical profession. Uh, the jobs aren't there, and the uh, history that those of us who have jobs produce often is history just for uh, other professionals' consumption, whereas people who ordinary people who care about the past, uh, the vast majority of uh, listeners to this, for example, find themselves not going to uh, academic books, but to books written by people who have a passion for the subject and write about it with or without training and produce sometimes wonderful books, sometimes terrible books. Uh, but it, it's out of kilter if we're depending on, on hobbyists to produce our, our history while the professionals are, are doing something else, whatever it might be. I will say this, at the, the AHA, there are a series of presentations. Uh, the, the real uh, program of the, the, uh, of the annual meeting is for uh, historians to give presentations uh, listened to by a, pan uh, a panel of two or three historians present their work, uh, some, some articles, some chapter they've written. Uh, a commentator discusses it, and then the audience is welcome to ask questions. It's not infrequent for the audience to be about as large as the panel on the stage. Uh, of the hundred or more presentations this year, I would say there were a few that you could pay. You could have paid me twenty dollars to walk across the street and sit through one of them and listen to it. I don't think there were any that I would have gone to for ten dollars. I think I would have. Would have gladly foregone the $10 to skip all of them, which I in fact did and didn't get paid $10. Uh, the topics are increasingly obscure and increasingly contentious and, and, and sometimes deliberately provocative, but not, not of a whole lot of general interest to someone who just wants to know what happened in the past. And uh, until that changes, the historical profession will continue to marginalize itself. In contrast, uh, last week's show, or two weeks ago, the show was, was not live because I uh, had a very kind invitation to speak at the, uh, the Anderson Cottage, the Lincoln uh, Summer Home in Washington, D.C. And listeners, if you're anywhere within driving distance of the nation's capital, make it a point to go see the Lincoln Cottage, uh, President Lincoln's home at Anderson Cottage, I think is what they're calling it, or at the Soldier's Home. It has many names. It also goes called the Soldier's Home because Veterans lived there during the Civil War, and veterans live there today on the grounds uh, in a retirement facility. It is an astonishing thing that this building that Lincoln occupied through the summers of the Civil War went unnoticed for a 100 years and was used for many other purposes. But it has been reclaimed, restored. A visitor center uh, is now open that interprets the facility. The building itself does not have a lot uh, in it. It does not have exhibits in it at this point. And it, it sort of looked as though the Lincolns been caught up in the foreclosure wave and had just left with taking all their furniture. The building, the, the rooms are mostly empty, but that meant there was a room in which a reception was held and another room in which uh, I, I gave my talk. Uh, these cottage conversations, as they call them, are, are, are relatively small and intimate and uh, really fun. Uh, Craig Simons will be giving the next one. Go to the uh, Anderson Cottage Lincoln Home website and, and see when he's speaking there, and I know you'll enjoy that too. Uh, but really a worthwhile place to see and, and to walk, 
to stand in a building and, and realize this is the room where Lincoln was pacing about, thinking about the Emancipation Proclamation. It, it's uh, like any uh, uh, real history site is, is worth worth uh, experiencing. Uh, let me uh, just quickly interrupt myself here and say hello to our guest, uh, Professor Dan Sutherland. Uh, uh, Dr. Sutherland, are you there? I am indeed, Jerry. How are you? Good, Dan. Thank you for waiting. Normally, I don't go on at this excessive length, but it's been such a layoff since our, our last live show. I've got one more announcement to make, so I appreciate your patience if you can hang on, and we will get to your very interesting book in just a moment, but uh, uh, just don't go away. All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, the other thing I want to say, and, and, and Dan, feel free to comment on this uh, since it, it refer, reflects on all of us, is news out of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Um, first of all, uh, the Gettysburg has chosen a new superintendent, or the Park Service has a new superintendent for Gettysburg National Military Park. Uh, and I just came across that this morning, uh, noticed it. Uh, I apologize to the superintendent that his name has already slipped out of my mind. But what stuck with me was the favorable response on several blogs from uh, uh, people who care about such things. He was the former superintendent at Petersburg, uh, had spent uh, eight or nine years there. He knows Civil War battlefields, and uh, uh, this I think he was appointed earlier this month, and, and uh, the signs are good for uh, for Gettysburg to have leadership in the hands of someone who knows what what uh, what the war is about, uh, in the, in the sense, or, or what battlefields are about. Perhaps better to say, the uh, previous superintendent was quite controversial. Um, was eventually reassigned due to. An incident involving uh, downloading of, of inappropriate images, as I understand it, uh, to the office computer. Something, uh, something went on not to do. Obviously, my feeling is, is he was reassigned because he would refuse to appear here on Civil War Talk Radio, uh, in spite of several invitations. His staff uh, always gave the, the runaround and, and did not want to expose him to the media. And and all kidding aside, really, if, if the, if a public servant in a Civil War-related position like that doesn't want to communicate with the Civil War-interested public, then, then what's he doing there? Uh, so I look forward to having the new superintendent on the show sometime, in, perhaps in the year ahead. The other news from Gettysburg is uh, the battle is back on. Uh, a new business group wants to open another casino. Uh, many of you will recall a few years ago the battle that Adams County, Pennsylvania, saw as uh, an attempt was made to uh, to make gambling legal and to draw more visitors to the area. Because when all you have as a tourist attraction is just, uh, what would you call it, the most significant land battle in North America ever, the graves of thousands of heroes, the hallowed ground, if that's all you've got, then, then you're never going to get anyone. You've got to get a gambling casino if you want people to show up. Uh, so that seems to be the business community's thought. Uh, fortunately, common sense prevailed, and that attempt was defeated. But it's back on. Uh, someone wants to take over the old Eisenhower Hotel, which, unlike the earlier uh, concepts, uh, the Eisenhower one is really on the battlefield for all practical purposes. Uh, so if, if if you share my view that, that uh, an appropriate way to understand our, our 
country's history and uh, uh, and, and behave appropriately toward those who, who fought on, on either side uh, is not to be pulling uh, handles on slot machines and, and gambling your savings away. Uh, if you don't think that's a good idea, consider looking at the uh, website uh, nocasinogettysburg.ning.com for more information on what's going on uh, and, and doing what you can to resist this encroachment. When I was driving back from Washington, I, I went past uh, the site of the Walmart uh, uh, outside Chancellorsville in the wilderness area, and uh, uh, not just the Walmart, but Sprawl in general is headed that way. It seems very hard to head that off, uh, but but maybe something, but the idea of, of an incursion onto the Gettysburg battlefield just, just boggles the mind, and, and I hope people will, will speak up to prevent that. Well, with uh, apologies uh, uh, for that extended opening to our guest, Dan Sutherland, uh, welcome again. Dan, thanks for uh, being on the show today. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Now, uh, I mentioned in the introduction, you're at the University of Arkansas. Uh, I have that right? That's right. Uh-huh. And uh, t- tell me a little bit about your, your background. How did you get to Arkansas? And, and uh, uh, is... is teaching and reading about the Civil War, something that you'd always planned on doing? Well, not at all. Uh, <laughs> um, I started out to be a, a football coach uh, many, many years ago. I, I grew up in, in Detroit, in, in Michigan. Ah, so did I. Where, where, uh, now we'll really get off track. Where, where... <laughs> uh, on the east side, I, I went to Southeastern High School. Okay, my mother taught at Pershing for many years. Oh, my gosh. Uh, on the west yeah. side, yeah. Well, no, Pershing's the East Side School. Did he find uh, too? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We we I grew up in Highland Park, uh, Woodward and Six Mile, and uh, okay. uh, uh, my mother still lives on the Far East Side out in Gross Point now. But uh, so so, uh, but Southeastern that was a powerhouse. Um, uh, well, well uh, mostly after I was there. <laughs> Once they got rid of rid of me, they went on to great things. Uh-huh. But uh, no, I grew up uh, just wanting to play football and. Uh, that that uh, dream was interrupted by service in in the Navy in the uh, in the early 70s, and it wasn't really until I, I got out of the Navy and then went went to graduate school that I kind of fell into a uh, a Civil War niche. Uh, it, it just so happened that uh, uh, Grady McWinnie, one of one of the great Southern and Civil War historians of his era, was uh, teaching there at the time, and somehow or other I became his. Um, research assistant uh, and things went on uh, I've got a Grady McQuinney connection as well to to share with you Dan we're going to take a short break and I I apologize for cutting you off just as we start but we'll dive right into it in just a moment we'll be back with Dan Sutherland in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Today's question, when will the host stop talking and let the guest tell us about guerrilla warfare? Hopefully in the next segment when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. (laughs) 
Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Haiti has been hit hard by a deadly earthquake. Destruction is everywhere. Tens of thousands are feared dead and hundreds of thousands are homeless without food, water, and basic necessities. Save the Children is on the scene, but your support is urgently needed to help us save lives. Please give as much as you can now. Call 1-800-SAVE-THE-CHILDREN or go online at savethechildren.org. You can even donate $10 right now by texting the word SAVE from your cell phone to 20222. Please give now. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Daniel E. Sutherland, author of A Savage Conflict, The Decisive Role of Guerrillas in the American Civil War. And in our first segment, we got caught up on the news and then uh, just began talking about... Uh, uh, backgrounds and Dan, you mentioned uh, Grady McQuinney. You said was uh, a mentor. He was a student of David Donald's, as was I, and he he may have been one of the first, and I was one of the last. So we bracketed his career. But uh, it just shows how you and I and everybody else are all one degree separated in in the the academic world. Seems to be indeed. Yeah. So so where were you studying with him? Uh, that was at Wayne State in Detroit. Ah yes. Uh, uh, where where my parents went, uh, the connections are too uh, too tangled now. We'll continue uh, uh, back to the Civil War. So you studied, uh, um, uh, so you became interested in the Civil War, or began studying it seriously at that point. Pretty much so. I, it, it took a while actually for me to consider myself a, a Civil War historian, and, it, and I I think generally I, I think of myself more as simply a 19th century historian, but. I, uh, in, indeed, most of my work is centered on the uh, on the either the causes of the war, the war, or the the aftermath of the war. Well, I mean, as a nineteenth-century historian, that that seems. Was there any other event comparable in the United States in the nineteenth century, in terms oh. of its impact on on people? Oh no, that, I mean that, that's the centerpiece. I mean, it, it it just so happens that the war comes in in the middle of the century, but. Uh, indeed, everything it, it seems in the first half of the century is sort of drifting toward that point, and then everything uh, afterwards is, is uh, a result of the aftermath and, and the ramifications of the war. And, and that's when I was uh, giving a hard time to the panels that I saw advertised at AHA this year. Uh, it does seem like a lot of historians, uh, maybe not quite as much as before, Ten years ago, uh, uh, worked very hard to find ways to talk about the past without reference to military events. Oh, absolutely, they, they still do, <laughs> and, and and yet those are are central uh, to the people who are actually there. Uh, yeah. We ought to respect their their interests. So, uh, what about guerrilla warfare as a subject? How did that come onto your radar screen? Well, sort of the same way as uh, entering the historical profession, but by happenstance. <laughs> I had been um, had been working on a uh, uh, a history of Culpeper County, Virginia, a, a community social history, and this would be in the uh, the early nineties. Um, when out of out of nowhere, the uh, editor of the Arkansas Historical Quarterly, the state his, history journal here, uh, asked me if I would write uh, an article about 
guerrillas in Arkansas during the war. And I explained I had never looked at <laughs> guerrillas anywhere before. Uh, and the editor, editor said, oh, just just go read a few books and <laughs> see what you can find out. And and so I did, and, and I, I became fascinated by the, the subject. And so uh, I, I set it aside until I had finished the Culpepper book, but then I, I went back to it and... Uh, Rather than restricting myself to guerrillas just in Arkansas and in the Trans-Mississippi, I, I thought I would look at the, the grand scope of the, the guerrilla war. Well, this book really does that. And uh, uh, I guess one thing we ought to do, since I took so much of your time earlier, is just cut right to the, uh, the bottom line. Your subtitle is The Decisive Role of Guerrillas in the American Civil War. Right. Uh, everybody listening to this show has heard of Quantrill and heard of... Uh, Mosby, and you can argue if he was a guerrilla or irregular or partisan, uh, but but they, they've heard of uh, the bushwhackers, uh, but very few, I would guess, would 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 immediately say, well, of course that was the decisive uh, uh, element in the war, or that they played a decisive role rather than just a peripheral one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how how let's talk about that. How how do we get from the traditional view that they're just uh, you know, interesting, to decisive. Well, by by understanding that, as you suggested, that the uh, Mosby and Quantrill are just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, the, the, the first thing I discovered, and what really got me kind of sucked into the subject, uh, is that this this guerrilla conflict was was played out uh, virtually everywhere in, in the South. Uh, every, every single state of the Confederacy had had its internal guerrilla war. Um, and it even lapped over uh, across the Ohio River into the uh, the lower Midwest. Why do you suppose it was so prevalent in the South? Is, is there a cultural predisposition? Well, you, you could argue that. It, it, you get on, on tricky territory there when you start talking about uh, predisposition. Uh, that's a good. Well, and, and, and as I even as I said that, I realize I'm I'm treading on uh, uh, Professor McQuinney's famous book, uh, the, the, the Celtic uh, thesis. Yeah, yeah, the Celtic thesis. Uh, Jameson and McQuinney uh, uh, arguing that, that Southerners are more disposed to headlong attacks. But I'm not really. I, I don't mean to suggest that. Certainly, nothing biological. Uh, but right. um, but is there anything in Southern culture that that makes the role of the guerrilla seem more appropriate. Well, certainly it, it was part of their their heritage from the uh, the American Revolution. Uh, when when you look at at the way in which the uh, the uh, war against Great Britain was fought, um, a lot of the volunteers across the uh, the colonies, of course, were what we regard as as Minutemen. Uh, but in in the northern colonies or in the northern states, they were more or less organized as, as part of the Continental Army, uh, whereas in the, in, in the southern states, they, they tended to, to fight more independently. Uh, now, I don't know that I would call them all guerrillas, but certainly you had that, that, that um, spirit and that tradition within the South for uh, a more independent sort of, of warfare. Um, and then when it comes to the, uh, to the Civil War itself, uh, the guerrilla war really begins as um, uh, a natural means of, of defending uh, communities and, and, and homesteads before there's any uh, organized 
uh, army, any organized way to, to defend those communities. So people just grabbed shotguns and, and squirrel rifles and uh, took to the hills to, uh, to, to thwart the advancing Union army until uh, the Confederate armies could be put into the field. I thought an interesting example. Uh, you cite, of course, the uh, you know the six Massachusetts going through Baltimore on its way to Washington, mm-hmm. being attacked by mobs. Uh, again, it's a familiar story, but uh, but putting it in this context uh, is, is that an example of what you're talking about here, of, of sort of a home defense reaction? Sure. I mean, you could consider that, I suppose, uh, a type of urban warfare. Uh, but and and of course, the authorities at the time referred to it as as a mob. <laughs> Uh, but then they oftentimes refer to uh, a Confederate guerrillas in, in that same way. It's, it's just a, a matter of sort of instinctively you know, picking, up, picking up whatever weapon is at hand to uh, uh, stand in the way of uh, a perceived threat. So this went on throughout uh, throughout the South at, at the beginning of the war. You're suggesting there were outbreaks. You found outbreaks uh, all around the border. Well, emphasizing the border because it's it's a gradual process. Uh, What what you find initially is this guerrilla war uh, sort of immediately uh, begins in in Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, where where that that first threat of a union advances to be found. Um, During those same early months, uh, you had uh, Southerners who, uh, again through this this inclination to uh, fight in that way, this predisposition, uh, would volunteer from the Deep South, uh, states like Mississippi and Alabama, uh, to go to Virginia, uh, thinking that they would be able to fight in in that way, not not as part of the conventional armies, but in in these independent uh, bands. So without subjecting themselves to the the discipline of Lee's army, they they hope to just go and Exactly. Whack their way through. Yeah, that that was one of the great uh, <laughs> attractions of, of guerrilla war, that uh, guerrilla warfare, that, uh, that the people hoped and believed that they could uh, work outside of the the rules and the and, and the regulations and, and the discipline of the conventional army. Now, the on the one hand, you, you've got the southern tradition, the, the, the Sumter and Marion and, and the, the, the partisans of the revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you mentioned even uh, uh, books uh, like The Partisan Leader, that uh, the novels that, that uh, I think that was the source of, of, of the Mel Gibson movie, The Patriot. Um, yeah, I think uh, so. Uh, uh, books that, that, that glorify and, and romanticize the, the uh, guerrilla Leader, but you've got a, a contrary tradition of uh, the, the Robert E. Lee uh, gentlemanly tradition, and you've got the West Point tradition. That, that uh, absolutely. Uh, how how did those mesh or, or conflict with each other? Well, they they mostly conflicted. I mean, <laughs> the uh-huh. uh, that the West Pointers, and, and this would include Lee himself, were, were very much opposed to this this brand of warfare. Um, for a number of reasons. Uh, practically speaking, uh, Lee realized that it was uh, it, for every man who joined the guerrilla ranks, that would be one less man for the ranks of the Army of Northern Virginia. Um, and then in addition to that, it was just the idea of the uh, the, the lack of discipline uh, exhibited by these guerrillas and how that could um, uh, affect the image of the Confederacy. 
both in the North and uh, and, and even abroad, uh, at a time when the Confederacy was trying to uh, acquire uh, recognition and, and the support of countries like like Great Britain, uh, to have the image of this this war being waged by a bunch of uh, uh, partisan uh, warriors uh, was not the sort of uh, image that the Confederacy wanted to to project. The uh, what about the Virginia Ranger Act? I think it was eighteen sixty two. What what was the was that an attempt to control these guerrillas in Virginia? Absolutely, and then of course that uh, spawned led directly to the, uh, the nationwide that is the Confederate wide Partisan Ranger Act. But 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 the thinking was that um, if the army could somehow uh, convince these. Uh, independent guerrillas to, to come in out of out of the field um, and, and submit even even minimally to the uh, discipline and, and, and order of the army uh, that they could they could be far more valuable uh, as supplements to the army, serving as, essentially as, as uh, light cavalry uh, uh, to perform re- reconnaissance missions and, uh, and and even raids to, to a certain extent. Uh, but in, in doing so, they would uh, provide them uh, with, with a, a cloak of legitimacy uh, that had kind of kind of spruce up their image, uh, which was the intent of, of both the uh, State Virginia Act and, and the, the National Partisan Ranger Act. And, and, and I should say too, uh, emphasizing uh, the uh, in, importance of all this insofar as the, the North was concerned, um, by that time that this was the, the spring of 1862. Uh, the Northern press uh, was beginning to um, decry this brand of warfare in, in the South and, and, and refer to these Confederate guerrillas as nothing but brigands and outlaws and so on. Uh, and, and the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, is, is, is very aware uh, of this. Um, and, and, and also the fact that uh, when uh, these uh, guerrillas were being captured by the spring of 1862, they were... Uh, oftentimes being executed on the spot rather than being treated as legitimate prisoners of war. Uh, and, and so the, the, these Ranger Acts were uh, also, in, in, in addition to simply sprucing up the image of the, uh, these guerrillas, was also meant to give them some sort of uh, legal protection, some sort of uh, legal legitimacy, so that they uh, would be treated as legitimate uh, soldiers as captured. So I mean, there's really a range here, a, a spectrum where you've got on. I mean, from the regular army, from from the Army of Northern Virginia, obviously this is, is traditional warfare under recognized codes. But then you get uh, someone like Morgan or Forrest who leads independent cavalry, right? Uh, but but wouldn't really be considered a guerrilla as as you're defining it. Uh, technically, no. Now I think Morgan is perhaps the most uh, interesting example and, and comes closest uh, to that uh, uh, a, a recognized uh, cavalry leader who uh, in, engages in what most people would, would regard as, as uh, guerrilla warfare. Uh, part of this was uh, Morgan's own fault because he didn't try to dispel uh, rumors or, uh, or uh, uh, images that, were, that portrayed him as a, as a guerrilla. Um, and, and indeed, his, uh, his his raids across the Ohio River and into the Middle West uh, were treated as guerrilla raids uh, by the people in those northern states. So he 
he perhaps more than any any of these other uh, legitimate Confederate cavalry leaders was was regarded as a uh, as, as as a, a partisan, if not uh, an outright guerrilla. And if you keep going further down that that spectrum, you get to the the Bill Anderson, the Sue Mundy, the 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 just outright the really nasty people, yeah. the really nasty people, the <laughs> outlaws who who killed uh, killed people for personal grudges and. and uh, uh, were, were clearly beyond the bounds of of what was accepted at the time as legitimate warfare. Um, how how did the, you mention northern uh, troops executing guerrillas? How uh, you know, Mark Grimsley has of course argued that that in, in the hard hand of war that the Union response strengthened over time. But you're saying there were executions as early as 1862. Well, absolutely. Um, even even late 1861 uh, in the in the Trans Mississippi. Um, it seems that, that Henry Halleck, when he was in command of the uh, uh, in, in Missouri, was the first uh, uh, department and in, in theater commander to uh, to issue uh, such orders. Uh, and then, of course, when he becomes the um, uh, commanding general of all the armies, um, he's quite willing to uh, allow uh, theater commanders elsewhere uh, to follow that. Go in that in that same direction. So, uh, there, I mean, there's there are restrictions. The the Lieber Code, the General Order of One Hundred, uh, was right. a set of rules for Union soldiers to follow, uh, an attempt to to make war uh, a law bound activity. And of course, Halleck was re- responsible for that. I mean, he, he's the one who commissions Lieber uh, to, to, first of all, write a, a code of conduct for for the treatment just of guerrillas. Uh, and then, and then, secondly, came the the, the broader Lieber Code. Uh, but, but, but Halleck was reacting in the same way, the same way that the uh, Confederate Congress did, concerned with the legitimacy of all of this. All of this. Uh, just as the Confederate Congress passed the Partisan Ranger Act to, to give their uh, their partisans and their guerrillas some uh, some sort of legal protection, uh, so Halleck uh, wanted something on the books. Uh, to legitimize the execution of these guerrillas, and, and that's what they got with the with the Lieber Code. And, uh, and of course, you have to the Lieber Code too. Is this was was denounced in in the South uh, by the Confederacy that uh, they refused to recognize the <laughs> legitimacy of, of the Lieber mm-hmm. Code because they they saw it as, as putting restrictions on them. Uh, mm-hmm. They refused to be uh, to allow uh, a Northern professor uh, Lieber. Uh, to determine how they would wage their war. Hmm. Well, Lieber was originally from South Carolina, as I recall. Well, he had taught in South Carolina for a number of years, yeah, but he was, uh, and, and he had, in fact, uh, uh, sons, two sons, uh, one of whom fought for the Confederacy and one of whom fought for the North. Uh, but, but he was very much opposed to slavery. That, that's one of the reasons he eventually went to, to New York to teach at Columbia University. So he, he was very much pro-Union himself. Mm-hmm. Now the uh, let me get back to the original question about decisiveness. Uh, uh, clearly, there was guerrilla warfare everywhere, not just on the, the, the scale that, that that people recognize with with some of the more famous uh, cavalry leaders. But but you argue it happens everywhere, and, and certainly there's an increasing public recognition. If if from Cold Mountain and, and nowhere else, then uh, that it's happening everywhere. 
so the big question is what effect did all this have? Uh, let's take a short break and come back and talk about that uh, and find out how decisive this all was. Uh-huh. We'll discuss that with our guest, Dan Sutherland, in just a moment when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Haiti has been hit hard by a massive earthquake. Hundreds of thousands of children and families are suffering and without basic necessities. Save the Children is on the scene to save lives. Your donation is urgently needed. Call 1-800-SAVE-THE-CHILDREN or go online at savethechildren.org. Guerrillas fought in every theater of the Civil War, but what was their effect? Helpful or harmful? To which side? We'll find out when we talk more with Dan Sutherland on Civil War Talk Radio. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. I have a dream. Sometimes it seems that life is just throwing you one obstacle after another. There are many people who have overcome or are overcoming their personal obstacles in order to succeed. Hear them talk about these barriers and how they overcame them on American Dreams, The Sky is the Limit, featuring host Jen Robertson. Jen herself overcame life struggles to become one of the most in-demand motivational speakers in the world today, as well as a best-selling author. Tune in to American Dreams, Wednesdays at 5 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Dan Sutherland, author of A Savage Conflict, The Decisive Role of Guerrillas in the American Civil War. And we were discussing in our previous segment uh, the the omnipresence of guerrillas throughout uh, the war, the different kinds, uh, the the effects they had, and uh, got to the $64 question, was the role really decisive? Uh, uh, So let let me put that ball back in your court. Okay. (laughs) Um, Well, it it would not have been decisive if you're talking in terms of uh, Confederate guerrillas defeating the Union armies. That that wasn't going to happen. The, the, the decisive element comes from the uh, the far-reaching ramifications of, of, of this guerrilla war and, and the fact that it, you can't think of it strictly in military terms uh, of, of Confederate uh, partisans opposing, uh, trying to halt the advance of the Union Army into the into the Confederacy. Um, first of all, this, uh, this Union retaliation against guerrillas also extended to the uh, civilian population um, so that uh, 
any non-combatant who was accused or in some cases even suspected of supporting these guerrillas uh, also became a, a target of the Union Army, uh, subject to being fined, uh, subject to having their property confiscated, uh, or in most extreme instances, subject to having their, their property uh, destroyed. Um, secondly, there was a, uh, an internal guerrilla war uh, fought not between uh, elements, partisan rangers of the Confederate Army and, and the uh, Union Army, uh, but c- Confederate civilians uh, fighting amongst themselves, uh, Unionists fighting against uh, pro-Confederates uh, to, to control their, their communities and their neighborhoods, um, oftentimes you know, hundreds of miles away from where the war was being fought, with, with not uh, an, an, an army from either side anywhere in sight. Uh, but this also becomes part of the, the, the larger guerrilla war that, uh, causes the, the disruption of, 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 of the home front uh, and, and a good deal of, of, of suffering, a good deal of uh, uh, people being forced from their homes, uh, people becoming refugees on, on, on both sides, uh, unionists forcing out uh, loyal Confederate citizens and then uh, con- Confederate guerrilla bands forcing out um, unionists who uh, uh, object to, uh, to, to the Confederacy. And, and, and then thirdly, there's uh, another element here, was the uh, uh, a, a strange mutation which, which takes place and the expansion of the, uh, the guerrilla war uh, away from any, any direct object of the war, either opposing the Union Army or trying to control the home front, uh, when you have hundreds and hundreds of um, uh, deserters from, from both sides, Union and Confederate, and, uh, uh, and draft dodgers, mostly from the... Uh, Confederate Army, who also form uh, essentially guerrilla bands uh, to um, uh, fight against the local law uh, officials who are trying to apprehend them and, and bring them in. Uh, so, so it's a combination of, of about three different guerrilla wars that are taking place. Uh, but the, uh, the, the bottom line, the effect of all of them, uh, is to cause this absolute havoc on, on the Confederate home front uh, so that when uh, Confederate civilians uh, are seeking protection uh, from the Union Army or from uh, rival guerrilla bands or from draft dodgers, uh, and, and they find that the Confederate government simply doesn't have the ability to protect them, uh, then, they, then they turn against the war and, and they turn against the Confederacy. Um, so um, the, uh, the, the... You mentioned, ironically, that in many cases the... Uh, uh, southern communities would call for uh, guerrilla units or suppose regular units to come and protect them, right. uh, but all that would do would be draw attention from the federal forces and, and make the situation worse. A- absolutely, yeah. This, this becomes um, a way in which the, um, the, the attempt to protect the citizenry actually re- rebounds against it in, in many instances. So, by the end of the war, you've got this, this almost endemic violence in, in many southern communities, and it's uh, and you, you can't tell the players even with a scorecard. You've got guerrillas in, theoretically in the service of the Confederacy. You've got those who are unionist. Uh, you've got locals trying to protect themselves against the Confederate government's attempt to levy 
supplies or men. You've got deserters. It, it, it just it's a mess. Absolutely. Now, what I thought was quite interesting, among other very interesting arguments throughout this book, uh, is what happens after the war. That uh, uh, you argue that this the guerrilla war doesn't end in 1865. Right. I, I, I don't take that as, as far, perhaps, as I, I, I might have. Um, I'll leave that to others. But what, what I'm suggesting is that uh, once the, the armies disband and the... Um, uh, soldiers go home. Um, that once uh, the United States, once the Union attempts to uh, establish a, a uh, what the Confederacy regards as an unwarranted uh, and, and overly harsh policy of Reconstruction in, in the Southern states, uh, that those those old guerrilla instincts resurface, um, and and uh, Southerners band together to to resist now this. Uh, these federal policies meant to reestablish legitimate gov- governments in the southern states. Uh, now, in some instances, this uh, can be seen in, in uh, acts of individual resistance, uh, so that you have people like uh, uh, Jesse James and the, and the younger brothers who, who had fought with Quantrell, who now become simply outlaws uh, in the post-war years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in a more organized way, it's, it's, it's quite easy to see um, paramilitary organizations like the, the Ku Klux Klan uh, having, having their roots uh, in this sort of uh, uh, independent uh, guerrilla resistance uh, that, that they learned uh, could be um, useful and, and effective during the war. So the, the decisive element is not uh, uh, the reader who who opens the pages looking to see where where Union Army is actually forced to retreat by guerrilla action uh, is not going to find that. No. Uh, but they're going to see, uh, as you say, that this becomes just pervasive throughout the Confederacy, that there's violence, that there is uh, a breakdown of order. You, you mentioned uh, uh, the famous example of Jones County, uh, in Mississippi, uh, but that's just one example of a, a chunk of the Confederacy or a community within the Confederacy refusing to acknowledge uh, Richmond's authority. Right, and, and and I don't want to leave the impression that the uh, the Union Army uh, didn't find these guerrillas to be a, a problem because because they certainly did. Um, you can see, for example, especially along uh, rail, rail railroad lines and lines of communication that were were subject to uh, guerrilla raids, uh, that the Union Army had to deploy uh, thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of additional troops uh, along those railroad lines that, uh, simply to protect them uh, against guerrillas, against sabotage, uh, which could otherwise have been used uh, as part of the advancing Union armies. And uh, just going back earlier in the war, uh from my own research, uh, the, the sack of Athens in 1862 in Alabama mm-hmm. uh, is a, a famous incident relatively early in the war where guerrillas attack Union troops. Uh, very incidentally, maybe a few shots are fired, but the Union response is to destroy the town of Athens uh, as a punishment. Right. And, 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 that, and that, that creates a cycle. And that, that comes in, in the spring of 1862. And, and, and by that time, as they say, by the spring and summer of 1862, uh, 
when the Union armies had had uh, enough experience elsewhere for this to be kind of a, a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, they, they were no longer by that time um, as interested in, in trying to pacify the civilian population uh, by, by peaceful means, by, by trying to win them over and win their confidence. Uh, they, they see now that that simply isn't going to work. And, and so the, increasingly the more immediate response is, is to punish those people uh, rather than to win their confidence. Now, the, the practice of punishing local civilians for an act that some of them may or may not have been involved in uh, becomes widespread, becomes uh, standard even. But is it effective? Uh, that's hard to say. Um, in, in some cases, yes. In, in some cases, no. Uh, I, I think over the long haul, um, it was it was effective from, from the union per perspective uh, because this is one of the things which uh, convinces more and more civilians that the, the, the cost, both the, the personal cost and in, in loss of life and in loss of property, uh, simply isn't isn't worthwhile. Uh, this is when they begin to um, have their gravest doubts uh, about the, uh, their, their support for the Confederacy. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, we had Elizabeth Varon on to talk about her book, uh, Disunion, mm -hmm. in which she argues that the language of the political discourse of the 19th century, including use of the word disunion, helped contribute to the fact of disunion. And uh, we discussed to what extent uh, dialogue before a war helps explain or justify or, or even cause a war. And uh, the question I, I had to ask was, was if her writing that book had anything to do with the politics of the, the past decade and, and the wars the United States became involved in. So uh, the variation of that question for you, uh, the United States is involved in trying to suppress insurgencies around the world were you thinking of that when you wrote about guerrilla warfare? No. Um, as I said, the, the inspiration for it originally just sort of came out of the blue, and, and this would have been back in the, uh, the early 90s, uh, certainly before any of the, the, the current problems were, had arisen. Now, you could argue, of course, Vietnam had, had come and gone by that time. Uh, but, but I really kind of consciously tried, as, as I was writing the book, uh, not to make those those sorts of comparisons, but I uh, I discover that there are, are are just too many differences between uh, 19th century irregular warfare and, and 20th and, and 21st century irregular warfare. Uh, I, I, well, sometimes the best history is the kind that that, that just highlights those differences and, and leaves us to wonder. Unfortunately, we are out of time. As always, happens too soon. But Dan, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you again for inviting me. I enjoyed it. And listeners, you'll want to get a copy of A Savage Conflict by Daniel E. Sutherland and learn more about this fascinating angle of the war. And thank you all for listening today to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. 
The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. <laughs> 